Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All right, people, we are headed back to Matthew chapter 14 to pick up where we left off. We did a little series on the end times and our hope of uh, Jesus' second coming. And now we are headed back to our regular scheduled program, Matthew chapter 14. We're going verse by verse all the way through. That's what we do here. And so let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, we acknowledge that we make our plans, but you direct our footsteps. So there is an element of predestination and especially gathering together here this morning. You knew who would be here and who wouldn't be here and why this message is uh, here on the platform this day to be reflected upon. We pray that you'd give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear and a heart that can understand because you, you've got something to say to every heart that you called here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was at the gym a while back, back in the days when you were allowed to do such crazy things like that. I got into a conversation with an older gentleman, very fit and very funny. He was on that rowing machine for hours and hours. It was his favorite thing to do at the gym, rowing, rowing, rowing. And one of the uh, times I asked him, what's up with that? He said, oh, it's my favorite thing to do. The only thing I don't like about it is after all that rowing, I never seem to get anywhere. (laughs) And so if he said that to one of the disciples, Here in Matthew chapter 14, they'd probably say, yeah, tell us about it. Rowing and rowing and not getting anywhere. Been there, done that here in Matthew 14. Let me give you some context and we'll dive in. It was the feeding of the 5,000, which is more like 15 or 20,000 if you count the women and children. Uh, Jesus multiplied a sack lunch, you'll recall, and everybody ate to their heart's desire. They had as much as they want, and this sparked an adverse reaction that caused Jesus to put the disciples urgently in the boat, see them off, and slip through the crowd. And so what was going on is is that John, chapter 6, tells us that they saw the loaves and the bread, and they just figured, we are going to make him our king now. So they came to take him by force. It was a mob there. I believe they were called Hungry Lives Matter. (laughs) 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 All right. Uh, uh, And so uh, quite a campaign promise. You know, I'll be your Messiah and you'll never be hungry again. A king that calls down bread from heaven. Who doesn't want that? And so that's going around in the crowd. And Jesus says, this cannot get into the heads and the hearts of his 12. So he packs them into the boat and sends them off and says, I'll, I'll come later. <laughs> and he does. He shows up later for sure. And then he slips through the crowd to go up to the mountainside to pray. Remember a few chapters ago, that was the intention of going to that side of the lake. But the crowds caught on and showed up with their needs. And Jesus says, it's people first. And he had compassion on them. Well, now he has a chance to do what they came to do, is get alone and spend some time with the Father. And now here is what happened that fateful evening. 
starting at verse 21. Here, immediately, Jesus makes the disciples get into the boat and goes on ahead of, uh, uh, tells them to go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Verse 24, but the boat was already a considerable distance. John tells us three or four miles. That's the middle of the lake. It's seven miles wide. And it was being buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And then I slipped in a line from Mark's account. He saw the disciples, Jesus that is, straining at the oars because of the prevailing winds. Can you imagine? He saw them straining, but he's four miles away up on top of a mountain. Uh, Verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, that's about three in the morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they say, and cry out in fear. But Jesus immediately tells them, take courage, take heart. It is I. It's me, guys. Don't be afraid. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come he said. Then Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, the effects of the wind, obviously, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reaches out. His hand catches him. You have little faith, he said. Why'd you doubt? Didn't have to do that. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind dies down, and immediately, and here's what John said. John likes to to write about Jesus being equal to God in every way and showing off his miracles. John says, and immediately, by the way, the boat reached the shore where they were headed. That's a bonus miracle here. (laughs) We're going to talk about that. Verse 33 Then those who were in the boat worshipped him. Finally, truly, they say, you are the Son of God. So that's our passage for this morning's reflection. Really sweet in these trying times where we get a lot of pushback in life. We're straining away at the oars, but our Jesus, he sees us. He knows where we are. He comes to us. He's with us with encouraging words. We're going to talk about these things because truly, as I've always taught you, miracles are not just for miracles themselves. They're not an end to themselves. They always have a teaching purpose as well as the immediate purpose to alleviate suffering or to come to their rescue in this case. But he's also using miracles to preach and to teach the nature of God, the condition of man, our desperate need, and the wonders of our salvation and the gospel. And so in this miracle, I mean the sermon illustration, I mean you don't have to be a prophet and you don't need to go to seminary to figure out what God's trying to say through the miracle itself. You know, some good news for some very weary saints who are doing what God told them to do, rowing and rowing and rowing, not seeming to make any headway. Frustrated and anxious and concerned, but he sees us, he comes to us, and we do amazing things when we lock our gaze upon our Savior in faith. And so let's walk through this incident It divides quite nicely. Note takers first. Uh, Verses 22 through 24, the disciples run into some trouble. It's what we do. And uh, second point, Jesus comes to the rescue. It's what he does. He's called our Lord and Savior. That's what saviors do. And a good thing, because we need it so much of the time. And then finally, we'll wrap up with Peter learns a lesson about faith. He takes a calculated risk, doesn't he? Which really mature Christians do. If you want to do anything of impact for God, you will get out of the boat and uh, 
the Lord will supply the power and enablement to do what we could never do on our own, right? And so we'll wrap up with that bonus uh, miracle there, the, the uh, inclusion of the fact that uh, as, they, as they welcome Jesus into the boat, which is kind of strange language, and it's for a reason, as soon as he gets in, the wind goes, and they're at the shore, which kind of is the motto of the entire story. So let's go to that most famous lake in the world on that moonlit night. We're going to see the disciples off. We're going to hear the wind pick up. And we're going to watch our Jesus slip up through the crowd and get away for some time of prayer, starting at verse 22 then, our first point. I'll paraphrase. We just went through it. With some urgency, the word there, he compelled them to get in. That was important. Get in the boat now. That's the kind of language. And also, he dismisses the crowd with the same urgency. It's, he looks at the crowd and says, it's time to go home. He dismisses them with the authority of the Son of God. So he gets them settled in the boat, and he says, I'll come later. He disperses the multitude. And as the crowd is thinning out, there in verse 23, goes up the hillside to spend time with God the Father. Night falls, he's there alone. Verse 24, meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land because that strong wind had picked up. A storm was upon them again, and they were straining at the oars, fighting heavy waves, and he sees it. He sees it. The disciples head into trouble. All right. The bittersweet reality of being a Christian is this, and Jesus laid it out. He pulled no punches with us, right? He let us know in John 16 and verse 33. He says, the reason I'm telling you these things is because I want you to have peace in me because I promise you one thing. In this life, and I'm quoting, you're going to have trouble. I promise you. You're going to have trouble. You'll be doing my will. You'll be rowing in the direction I told you to row. And there'll be pushback and there'll be frustrations and all kinds of problems. But he says, but be of good cheer. So here's the sweet part of the bitter sweet. Be of good cheer. Same words. Take heart. I'm with you. And I have overcome the world. That's the quote. Be of good cheer. I'll be with you. I've overcome the world. So therefore, my friend, if you're born of God, 1 John chapter 5 says, anyone who is born of God, if God breathed in the spirit of new life came into you, you must, by his destiny, overcome the world like he overcomes the world. And so that just means you're going to get to heaven. You're going to get to heaven. You're going to make it. You're going to become who God has intended you to be. And so... Yeah, Jesus pointed them in that direction, right? Like the first time they hit the storm, but only he was in the boat in Matthew chapter 8, right? This time he's not in the boat, but he still sent them in that direction. And they're, doing, they're, they're in trouble for doing what God asked them to do. Remember that, that's important. The disciples are doing exactly what they've been told, and they meet with pushback. And so I've already told you why he had to get the folks uh, out of there, and to dismiss their erroneous thinking. They were, they were coming to some lethal misunderstandings, the, theologically speaking, uh, which would render the gospel useless. And, and here was their, their conclusion. It's all about us. Oh, we fi finally, we've got a king who's going to solve all our problems. He's gonna, we're never going to be hungry. We're never going to be sick. We're always going to have money in the checking account because he'll just wave his magic scepter, a wand, and he said, I mean, he's here to serve us, people. Look at that. We're going to make him our king now. Jesus is like, oh, no. Oh, no, I've got a mission more profound than that. First, I've got to die for the sins of the world. And I'm going to call you to come alongside and pick up your cross and deny yourself and share in the rejection and the suffering that, that is mine as well. And so they were way off base for sure. And anybody who thinks the Christian life is all about you and making you happy, you're in for a big surprise and a big letdown and you won't be very useful to God. 
And so that's why he gets them in the boat and he dismisses the crowd now. He gives them uh, correction. In fact, he tells the crowd before he slips away, why are, you, why are you chasing me down for the bread? That's silly, people. That's temporary. Chase me down. Spend your time in trouble for eternal things. I'm the bread of heaven. I come down to feed your soul so that you'll live forever. Come on. And then he slips up and slips up the side of the hill and he goes to spend time with the Father. Now, verse 23, it's very touching to see God the Son praying, kneeling before God the Father. It's just an amazing thing, you know. A lot of people say, well, he didn't really need to pray. Why was he praying? And sometimes they'll say, well, he's just modeling to us. And I would say, are you kidding me? He is fully God, but he's fully man. He needs to pray. There's been a crisis. People are getting the wrong idea about his mission, and they're stirring things up before it's time for him to lay down on that cross. Satan is at work in those crowds. He wants to go up and spend time with the Father. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses and others who deny the deity of Christ, which means that God, Jesus is God fully, as Colossians 2.9 and a slew of other uh, scriptures say, that he is the fullness of deity in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. That's it. He's God in a human body. Right? And so the Jehovah Witness friends of ours will say, okay, they'll point to this passage and say, okay, he's God, right? Yeah, he's God. Who's he praying to? Himself, right? Well, you know, I'll answer back and say, God the Son is praying to God the Father through God the Holy Spirit, the three and one. How do you explain that? Well, let us make man in our image. God is speaking in the plural of himself. He's, he's plural in himself using singular verbs. Let us, Elohim, God, is the gods. Let the gods make man in our singular image. And how do we reflect his image? We're triune. We've got three parts, body, soul, and spirit, but we're one. My body's not my soul. My soul's not my spirit. My spirit's not my body. Try to separate me. You've got a dead man. Because that's how integral we are. Knit together three in one like our God. And so God the Son is spending time with God the Father. And it's just unbelievable. He did it not just when he was in crisis, by the way. Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 11 shows Jesus as a regular pattern of morning time, getting away and praying. One writer put it this way, a Baptist pastor. He said, if the perfect sinless Son of God needed daily renewal and empowerment to nourish his soul in the presence of the Father. How arrogant are we, his younger non-divine siblings, who think we can survive without the daily discipline of prayer. Ouch, right? I mean, none of us prays enough. It's the terrible scourge of the Christian church is that we go through life on fumes. The prayer gauge is like on E, near E, usually for most Christians, including myself. And we all kind of think about prayer a lot and we pray here and there. But I mean, does anybody really truly pray commensurate to our true need? Jesus said, you can't do one Thing without me. We need to pray more. So fortunately for us, even when we aren't praying for ourselves, someone's praying for us. And that's the picture of Jesus on the mountaintop. He's our intercessor. He's our mediator. That's what he does. I love Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says this. He is able to completely save us who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for us. That's what he does. 
He's always got his eye on us, and he's always speaking on our behalf. I don't want to belabor the point, but on the night he was betrayed, Peter was boasting about, if everybody forsakes you, I'll never forsake you. I'll die with you. And, and, and Jesus just says, bro, listen up. The devil has asked permission to work you over, to take you out, man, to sift you like wheat. No worries. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. That's his job, and he loves it. He prays for us, and he's up there. He sees them straining. He knows they're in trouble. He's got a redemptive reason for allowing them into the storm. Every single time a Christian suffers in any way, in any way, it's redemptive. There's a purpose in it. He's teaching us. He's helping us. He's redeeming us in, in ways that we could never uh, really understand. Now, you know, yeah, the winds pick up there. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is like in the shape of a cup. And it's 600 feet below sea level, surrounded by mountains, which causes these natural, weird precarious shifts in weather patterns, and it happens to this day over there. But it's natural to whip up the storm out of nowhere, but there was supernatural involvement, of course, because the word buffeted means to be tortured. So they're being tortured, and the word is always connected to the evil one and his minions, shall we call them. And so that's what's going on there. They've got some interference and some pushback there. They're out 25 to 30 stadia in the Greek. That means 600 feet for one stadion measurement, right? And so they're three and a half miles out, like I said, in the middle of the lake. And, they, and, and think about it. And the reason John tells you how far they've gotten is so that you understand what's going on here. They've been rowing all night. They've been rowing since sundown. It's now, according to John, again, the fourth watch of the night. The Romans divided time up from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four sections of three hours each. So the fourth watch would be 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So it's somewhere around dawn. And they've been rowing 10 hours, three and a half miles. Now, what's going on here? You know, and they're frustrated, now they're exhausted. They're, there's a lot of despair, and there's confusion. And because they're being tormented, and we know the source of the demonic action involved, you know that the devil has whispered in their ears, as now it's becoming dangerous, where's your Jesus when you really need him? What was he thinking? Go that way. Didn't he know? Why would a God of love let you find yourself in such a precarious situation? Maybe he doesn't care about you. And you know they're thinking that. You know why I know that? Because when Jesus was in the boat with them, they wake him up and say, hey, teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? Hello, might want to get up from your nap time. Save us, he says. Don't you care that we're drowning? What's your problem? Wow. So if that's what they say to his face when he's in the boat, how much more now? Well, where is he? Why didn't he get in with us? Why did he put us this way? Doesn't he know that we're struggling here? And so there's an answer to that. And here it comes, verses 25 through 27. So I'll paraphrase again. Right before dawn, here comes Jesus walking on the lake, not beside the lake. Not on a raft, not on any flotation device. He's walking on the water. When the guys see him walking on the water, they're out of their minds with fear, and they say, it's a spirit. They scream at her, it's a ghost. Verse 27, but Jesus immediately calls them to fear, to calm their fears. They call, he calls out, courage, men. It's me. You have nothing to fear. And so... The disciples run into some trouble, and here comes the Lord, because that's what our God does. He sees us, 
and he comes to our rescue. And so to answer the question, where is Jesus when a believer really needs him, when they're freaked out, frustrated, weary, exhausted, spinning around in circles, going up the escalator the wrong way, you know, all of that seems everything working against you. Where is God when you need him most? Well, you answer the little toddler inside of you who's throwing a fit because they didn't get what they wanted when they wanted it. And that's what we all have in there. We have this little self-centered brat that's in there trying to run the place until the adult Christian just says, now wait a second here, let me answer the question. You ask the good question. Where is Jesus right now? The lesson on this story, one of the thousand of lessons, is just because we can't see him doesn't mean he can't see us. Because they're going to, in a year and a half from now, they're going to have to know he's gone. They're not going to see him in the flesh anymore. But just because they can't see him doesn't mean he doesn't see them. That's one of the lessons. So we tell ourselves when ourselves are acting immature, and like more like an, a non-believer than a believer, we set ourselves straight. We encourage ourselves in the Lord. He sees me. He knows what I'm going through. He sees me straining at the oars, and he's going to come in his time and in his way. And then I'm going to be able to do amazing things because I trust in him. Try answering yourself once in a while. When self says, hey, let, you know, why don't you say, hey, let's not. Amen? Hello. <laughs> you know, so they it's it's right before dawn as that poem goes, Thomas Fuller wrote it in the 1650s that it's always darkest before dawn. I don't know that that's technically true, but we know what he means. Those last few moments before rescue. They're the worst. Those last two minutes before, you know, the cops show up or, you know, it's just the worst, right? And so just when they think they can't do, just make another rotation of their arms, Jesus shows up at first, and this is what I love. At first, he makes the problem worse (laughs) by showing up. Because what happens? They freak out with terror, right? And so one writer said this. When the problem is in us, and we're straining away and not getting anywhere, which is not their problem. But when it is our problem, when it's our worldly sinful choices that impede our progress in the Lord or in life, that causes our woes, when Christ appears, it can be indeed a bit of an initial fright. So in other words, you're like, what's going on, Jesus? Help me, I can't get anywhere, right? And then he shows up and he says, hey, stop drinking. Stop it. I told you this before. What are you drinking for? What is this the time for your wine all night long? Come on, man. Why do you think your marriage is suffering? Why do you think that, that you're feeling colder toward me and you're, and you're in decline? And so there's an initial shriek of terror. <laughs> you know, what? I didn't expect you to show up. I expect you to solve my problem, not address the cause for the problem, you see? You know, and, and then in, in so many ways, stop being sexually immoral. Stop it. You know, so there's this young couple. They were talking to me at the baptism. They said, God is stirring us up. We're like saved. And I said, yeah, but you guys live, live together. You live together. That's not what Christians do. Come on, how come God be staring? Uh, they went and got married. They went and got married. You can stand up. Go ahead. They went. You know why? Because God came. There was a little bit of a shriek. It's like, what? You know? And, and then, okay, let's get it right because this was happening. Not going anywhere, not going anywhere. Let's do it God's way, people. He shows up. And I mean, this isn't because they're a sinner, but God will show up and it does cause you to shriek a little bit. Um, 
a Jewish friend of mine, he, he, he became a Christian. He's like, oh, man, I know I'm saved. I've got a lot of happiness. Man, my sins are washed away. I met my Messiah of my own people. And he goes, oh, man, but now what? He goes, now what? He goes, my life is ruined. <laughs> and he's telling me, he goes, oy vey, my parents, my parents are going to see it as a betrayal to them personally. Oh, you don't know Jewish moms. You don't know them. You don't know a Jewish dad. After all I've done for you, you turn to the Gentiles. You know, and, and he, he goes, I've got a position in the synagogue. You know, what am I going to do? And it's like, well, you're going to walk on water, bro. Is what you're going to do. You're going to walk on water and watch it. But there's that initial shriek of, whoa, yeah, I prayed that God would come and show up and solve my problems, but, ah! you know. And so I guess you get the point. So, but here the guys aren't in a jam because of anything wrong they're doing. It's because they obey. Would you please keep this in the back of your mind? What am I? Guess I'm not doing something right. No, you're doing something exactly right. A lot of the time. And you'll know if it's you or not you. You go back and check it. You know, I'm, I'm sure I'm doing it God's way. But there's this pushback. But like I said, every single storm a Christian faces it has a redemptive purpose. And so he teaches us in our troubles. He humbles in us, us in our hardship. He deepens us in the disappointment. They're going to remember these lessons for the rest of their lives. And I have written down here, the quicker we learn, the quicker the calm. Because the commentators were all quick to suggest, what was up with the 10 hours of rowing? Why was Jesus waiting there for 10 hours, watching them strain and strive? Is it because not one of them humbled themselves to pray and ask him to help? Was he just waiting? Is any one of you going to acknowledge uh, that you need me? That you're going to call out to the Lord? One writer put it this way. Most of these guys were professional fishermen. And their skill and their experience on the water was working against them. They're all, we got this. We got this. We don't need to cry out to God. My father was a fisherman. Half of them were fishermen. My father was a fisherman and his father before him. We've been on this water at night in the wind before. We got this. We're not going to cry out. We're not going to admit we're helpless and we, need, we can't do it. We're men. We got this, guys. Okay, Jesus, like another hour can go by too, and another hour and another hour until maybe it was John. That's what I pictured John. I don't know what. Why? But maybe John's like, guys, we're not getting anywhere. This is getting dangerous. It's out of our hands, man. Uh, you know, why don't we pray? Okay, let's pray. God, we need you. Lord, where are you? Wherever you are, Lord, we know you can hear us. You can come and help us, right? But they weren't thinking literally, right? And so they're, you know, they cry out. Call to me in the day of trouble. Their own psalm said it, and I will deliver you. And so they call out, hey, Lord, we need you. Come and help us. And so he shows up and says, did someone call? <laughs> you know, and it freaks them out, you know. But he waits for us. You have not because you, you ask not. He says, how long is this going to be a standoff with us that you're going to make it work? Your way, and you've got a hundred different ways until, you know, somebody says, it got so bad, we didn't know what else to do. We just prayed. <laughs> oh, really? I'm glad you waited and tried everything else before you went to him in prayer. And that's the source of a lot of this. He's just like, how long? You keep it up, you know? Keep it up until you cry out and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm desperate. I'm over my head. I need your help. Oh, God loves a humble heart. He lifts up the humble. But the proud, he opposes. Wow, I don't want God to oppose me. 
right? And so they see the shadowy figure there in verse 26. Their best guess is a ghost. I mean, who else can walk on the water? They mean the Greek word is just like we would say of somebody who died, and then you see them in the house, you see a ghost or a spirit. A disembodied spirit is what the word means. And and they freak out. And so, uh, notice the split second. He doesn't want them to be afraid. God hates to see his kids panicked. He really does. It tears them up. Because there's no need to be uh, tortured by fear. His perfect love casts out our fear. And so, uh, one writer said there are 365 commands in the Bible, fear not. One for every day of the year because God knows we're so vulnerable. We need that. He wants us not to fear but to have faith. And so he shows up and says, take heart, be encouraged. Uh, No need to be afraid. It's me. Now, I'm sure he would have said it's me in the colloquial way. He wouldn't say it is I, you know, like a Shakespearean actor, you know. Then have no fear, it's, 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 it's his eye. You know, it just doesn't sound like him. But in this case, he uses a word that they all know that dings them back to Exodus 3 and verse 14, where Yahweh, Jehovah, says to Moses, you want to know my name? I am who I am. I'm self-sustaining, I'm self-existent, I'm self-reliant. I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. Fill in the blank. That's me, the one and only. So Jesus has been using the I am thing. In fact, that's what he says literally out there. He says, take heart, I am the Lord. That's what that is. It's in the Greek, It's if you're taking notes, ego ami. It means literally, I Myself, I am. Nobody talked like that. except Jesus. So Jesus constantly would say, like, I'm the door of the sheep. But what he was saying is, I am, I, myself, I am the only exclusive, the one and only. It's me. And that was a title for God. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm with you. I'm here with you. He named himself God, Emmanuel. Emmanu means with you. El means God. He says, you want to know who I am? I'm the with you God. Because we're always thinking he's off somewhere else with something more important and something busy to do other than tend to little old us. But he says, oh, no, no, no. Little old you? I'm with little old you because that's who I am by nature. I told you the time I was at UCSF having a pity party because I'd just been diagnosed with this mysterious cancer and they didn't know if I was going to live or die and I was at UCSF in the waiting room. I've told you a lot of times because I love the story. And uh, I'm waiting to have my name called and I'm watching the tears roll off of my cheek onto my shoes dropping down there. And this nurse walks by and goes, Emmanuel, 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 she's got a little checklist there. And now I'm catching on like there's somebody, Emmanuel, she wants an Emmanuel, right? And so this big Samoan kid gets up, he had earbuds in, Emmanuel, and he walks by. But right before he got up, she says, is Emmanuel here or not? And, and I was like, wow. You know, the Lord just went, bam, Pastor Ross, come on. You know what the word means, Emmanuel and L, you know? <laughs> And so, yeah, so the answer to the question, is God here or not in your situation? And if he is, which he is, then you have to do some rethinking and you have to do redirecting of your emotions and your actions in light of the God of the universe is saying, not only am I with you, but I'm for you. I'm close enough to you, I'm right there, and I'm rooting for you, and I'm going to work this all together for your good. Therefore, how should you be? Should you be panicked? No, not panicked. And so we finish up with this, starting at verse 28. 
Lord, if it's you, command me to come out there with you on the water. And Jesus says, come on, Peter. Come on, let's do this. So Peter climbs out of the boat. He's walking on the water, heads for the Lord. Verse 30, but when he sees the wind whip waves, he panics and he starts sinking. Cries out to the Lord, save me. And immediately, see it again. And I love this about God. He saves us first, and then he brings the lecture. <laughs> you know, he saves us, then brings the word of correction. Always in that order. He grabs him, holds on to him. Now, now Jesus could have just spoken the word, be saved, or whatever. But he grabbed him because he wanted him to feel his strong arms. I got you. I got you. I'm right here. You're not going down. You're with me. And then, he, and then he says one word to him in the Greek. It's little faith man. It's all one word. Little faith man. What a sting. What a sting. He just looks at him and speaks the truth in love. And he goes, little faith man. You know, and instead of, I thought you were the rock. I named you the rock. And now you're the little faith man. And then he says this, why'd you doubt? You didn't have to, you have options here. You all have options. You're in your storm, you know, you're, you're looking at Jesus, you're taking the walk on the wild side, you're doing it, it's happening. And then the wind whips up and Jesus says, you have a choice. Go with me and faith and you're going to get through this or concentrate on the wind and the waves and how they feel instead of your faith and sink as a result. Now the grammar leans more towards since it's you. That looks like a lot of fun. I want to do what you're doing. This is, this is incredible. Are you kidding me? God, hey, Lord, since it's you, you just give the word and I'll be able to come out and do what my Lord is doing. Come on. And Jesus, you know he's smiling. You know. How can Jesus resist that? And he doesn't. He says, you know what? Come. He gives the command to do the impossible, which is what God does all the time with us. And so out he goes. Now, I know all the other disciples are really jealous. Oh, oh, afterwards. When they get to that campfire and Jesus is not around, they're like, dude, what were you thinking? Why would you even say something like that? That would never come through my head. That would never, that thought would, what were you thinking? And I can hear Jesus say, I don't know. It looked like fun. And I just thought, well, if Jesus said come, then who could resist that? And I'd be walking on the water. You know, I can imagine that. But then Andrew gets him alone, his brother. He says, man, Tell me, really, I mean, what were you thinking? And he says, Andrew, listen, I've got one life. And God has, for some reason, been pleased to reveal his son in me. Give me gifts and abilities to honor me. Why not go for it? Why not get out of the boat? Why not do the miraculous? Why not just say, hey, invite me to do something great? like you can do. That's what I did it for. I relate to Peter. It's it's easy to have a bromance with a guy like that. I mean, he's like this this unbelievable risk taker. He's impulsive. He's bold. He's confident. Yeah, he's a little impulsive. We like to call that spontaneous. (laughs) You know, sounds so much nicer. You know, I I relate to that risk taking thing. I I like to take risks. I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane once. I really did. I mean, it was working fine and up there till 14,000 feet. And then the door opened. And yeah, by the way, I had a parachute on. But the door opened and I realized, oh my word. What have I done? And everyone starts scooting over one by one. And I'm watching them. They sit on the edge of the airplane with the door open. And it's like, didn't you stop to think about any of this? So I'm scooting myself over, and there's a video. There's a video that I paid for that I'm going to show the church 
right? So I have to pretend. I have to pretend everything's fine. I'm not having a panic attack. But inside, I'm going, dear God, get me out of this. <laughs> what have I done? And the answer to how to get out of it is through the door. So I <laughs> but I liked it. I'll never do it again. But <laughs> So yeah, I like to take risks. Listen, 20 years ago, speaking of taking risks, I had a cancer that was hard to treat, lymphoma. And so I failed the chemotherapy and the radiation. So they said, we got to put you in for the bone marrow transplant, as many of you have heard. And I spent three months in the hospital at UCSF. And um, when I got out, I'm on disability. I just feel like my life is kind of over. And I went back to my associate pastor job, and the pastor said, and he, he didn't mean it mean, but he said, I don't have any more use for you. And so on the heels of a bone marrow transplant and just having no money and disability and no direction, I'm at this dead end. And then the pastor says, you know, you're, you're not useful. And so I felt like God said, you may not be useful to him, but I've got something for you to do. And so it was though it was a climbing out of the boat with no money, no support from that church, nothing. And so we got together and we hung out a sign and, and we sent a card to every household in Sebastopol and, and people came. And so we'd go home a, a, a after church and we, we'd count everybody. It was like, uh, it was like oh, we were past 30 people, you know, and we had 35 people. And I saw some, I came by for some food yesterday at April aprons and, ap and appetizers. And Julianne says, Pastor Ross, you remember in the early days when you would invite the whole church to lunch and we all, the whole church would go out for lunch. The whole church. But kids were the only ones in the youth group. I was the only employee. There were 40 Costco chairs set up. That was it. That's how we began. And God said, just, you know, I said, Lord, if it's you, you could say, come, and I'll get out of the boat, and I'll start walking toward you. And so I would just want to say a couple more things. It, God calls all of us out to do what you can never do without him. The whole Christian life is a walk on the water. Think about it. Loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, giving when you don't want to give, forgiving those who hurt you, <laughs> abstaining from your darling sins. Who can do that? We're all walking on water. We're all rising above our natural inclinations and doing the impossible. Let me show you a picture of Rosaria Butterfield. She's playing the guitar there singing. By her own words, she was a leftist, God-hating, liberal college professor, tenured, and she was a lesbian. And she came to faith. One Sunday morning, she went to church. She got saved. She renounced her entire life. She fell in love with a young man who became a pastor, now she's a pastor's wife and they have five kids. And she said in her testimony, every morning she gets out of the boat and she walks on water because this is a life she could never do. And there's so many of you with natural inclinations in a million different directions that because God says it and he does live holy, love your wife, like Christ loved the church. Who can do that? He bled and died for the church. Who can do that? Who can always submit to the husband as unto the Lord? Who can abstain from those sins? Who can live holy like God? Nobody calls us all, but he says, because you say it. The God who calls enables you. He will be the one who gives you the power. Thank you for that picture. So back to the verses, the only problem is, is if you drop the signal and is when your heart focuses on the problem or some other distraction and you lose the connection. 
when the heart isn't grafted to the one who's supplying that power, of course, you will sink. And so that's really what's going on there at the end. He loses his way. And the word for doubt, the word for doubt means to try to go two different directions at once. Do you see that? It also means to try to serve two different masters at the same time. That's what doubt is, and that's why you can't do it. So it's either faith and obedience to God with no fear, or you choose the fear. You can't do both, and that's why we unravel when we doubt, because as James put it, you're being double-minded, and you can't get anywhere if you're yes and no, no and yes, yes and no. It's either this. You live like there's a God in your life, or you don't. You live like a believer, like you believe the promises of God and you're going to act on them, or you live live like an unbeliever and you're going to panic. Let me end with this. God is calling a lot of pastors to get out of the boat and to walk on the water, take a little risk to give God what belongs to God. Because God says, gather. God says, sing. God says, teach and preach and baptize and love each other and serve and minister to each other's needs. That's what God says. Caesar says, no. God says, uh, but I said, yeah. I said, yes. And so pastors now and Christians have to choose. They either have faith and walk on the water and do what God says and see amazing things happen or doubt and sink and watch things be Hindered. Now, the last thing that happens there is, is that he, they welcome him. And one of the gospel writers says they yield to him. They, they welcome him. They're, oh, they're willing now to let him in the boat. It's really important because once they have this attitude like, okay, yes, come in. We want you in. The wind goes and the mist lifts because the sun's dawning. They realize what? They're at the shore. Oh, that's the biggest miracle in the Bible for me. That's the biggest miracle in the Bible. How did that happen? (laughs) We'll find out when we get there. But the last we read, it was three and a half miles out. They were in the middle. And when they say, okay, come in, come in. Well, it's in keeping with the entire miracle, isn't it? We're getting nowhere, we're getting nowhere, we're getting nowhere. Okay, okay, okay. They welcome him in. Boom, you're there. You see? That's, that's what it is. And many times he's waiting for that, come on a little closer, God, I'm going to give you what you've been asking for in this little situation. And when that happens, all the desire it culminates in fulfillment. It's almost like when someone who is dying as an unbeliever opens their heart and Christ comes in. They're at the shores of heaven immediately, right? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your great love. We pray, God, that you would bless this word, this teaching to our hearts, God, and help us to realize now as we wait upon you for communion time, to realize the the whole bedrock, the whole foundation of Our walk with you is based upon what you did for us, God. You came to our rescue in this great way that you laid down your life on our behalf. We thank you. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 